she's the, she was the head of HR. So while he was sexually harassing these black women and employees of his, they didn't feel comfortable going to HR about it because his wife was the head of HR. So what kind of anonymity would you have at a company where the person who's sexually harassing you and the person that you have to report that to is the wife of the person who's sexually harassing you? It doesn't... <sighs> Like, right. make it make sense out here. And we've all seen enough Tyler Perry movies to know what happens when you tell the wife. I'm oh, just kidding. Okay, no. I'm just kidding. Oh, no. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Hi, welcome back to our podcast. Welcome back. We're here. We're here. It's our first episode. <laughs> yes, we're, <laughs> this is actually kind of interesting, um, but it's, it's exciting too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what have you been up to? <sighs> oh, child. Um, <laughs> what have I been up to besides working and trying to coordinate a move? Um you know, so I can get started mm-hmm. doing, continuing my dissertation research. So I'm going to yeah. move pretty soon. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I, sh- I think I showed you. Yes. I'm like, I think <laughs> I showed you the apartment. Um, yes. So the boxes have arrived to my house. Have they been opened and filled? Absolutely not. But, you know, it's, it's okay. <laughs> it's a process. It's a process. You know, I, and moving is so mean, stressful. Like, moving is stressful. It's actually a lot more stressful than I thought. And who knew, like, it would be so expensive leaving the city, you know? Like, mm-hmm. who knew? Why does it cost money to live? I think that's, you know, <laughs> Listen, <laughs> it I saw be a future episode. <laughs> I saw this tweet. I saw this tweet that said, um... I didn't even choose to be here, but I have to spend all this money to live and like survive and feed myself. And I didn't even ask to be here. Yo, have you seen <laughs> the one where it was like, um, mom, remember all those promises you made about taking me out of this world? I'd really like to take you up on that. Like, I feel that every time a bill comes, I'm like, okay, my mother used to make those threats. Um, I might need her to follow through just on, just, <laughs> at least knock me into next year. Like knock me. <laughs> oh my God. Knock me into 2023 because not 2024. Cause I just read parable of the sower and 2024 oh. when it all begins, but maybe 2023. So I can have one, one good last year, you know, <laughs> one last hurrah. Um, Oh yeah, I'm excited to hear more about Parable of the Sower. What you what you think? Um, yeah, we have to discuss it. Yeah, we'll have to. Yeah, we'll probably have to do a separate thing about that. Um, yes. All right, Brendan. So I, you know, you, I guess you don't really want to hear what I, what I. No, I I just realized so we'll just, I was like, we'll wait a minute. <laughs> Just kidding. I was sitting there like, wait, this, I definitely need to ask you how you're doing. So what have you been up to and how are you doing? No, you don't have to. You don't have to. No, I want to know though. I want to know. So (laughs) I'm good. I, I mean, you know, we're, we're in this heat wave situation right now. So I 
haven't really been sleeping as well as I could. I do have air conditioning, mm. but New York is just not a place where you don't want to have central AC. I just have this unit. I have mm. the um, I have a portable air conditioner, actually. I, I sprung for that, but, you know, you just, it doesn't really keep the room cool. So you have to have it on all the time. My last Con Ed bill was ridiculous. We're not going to talk about Con Ed. Like, we're not going to talk about, oh, Con Ed, whoever. I looked at whoever. It was like five times what my what my bill usually is. And I just, I was shook if. That's all I have to say. I was shook Yeah, it's, I live on the top level of, you know, this, the building. And it's like all the heat all the time. Heat rises. It's, heat rises. And still I rise. I just... <laughs> That's what I remember from science class. Heat rises. <laughs> so I too am on the top floor. So I feel you. Mm-mm, it's just too hot. Well, I hope you're able to get some rest soon. I'm sorry, Con Ed is trying to play you, but it goes back to the question. Why does it cost money to live? I think. Yes. Mm-mm. I mean, Abolish. Play me. I played myself. Like, <laughs> let's be honest. But, well, I'm glad that you're doing well and you know things are things are progressing moving forward and that you're going to be able to you know get started with your field work. So but let's let's move into our first segment which is yes. called what's the word? So Brendan, what's the word for today? Yes, the word for today is massage noir. Um and so this is going to be basically our section where we talk about a word that we'll use throughout the episode or something that's been trending lately. And today we picked a word that unfortunately is always going to be in vogue, in fashion. Um, Ever present, evergreen. Yes. yes. Oh, child. Um, so Massage Noir uh, was coined by Moya Bailey and um, was further developed by a Black um, womanist theorist, Trudy. And they describe massage noir as a specific type of anti-Black misogyny that Black women experience. And so this form of misogyny speaks to the history of just racial sexual violence has been perpetuated against Black women. And both Moya and Trudy comment on how often massage noir has been misused and plagiarized, which is, of course, an act in and of itself of misogynist violence against these Black women. Mm -hmm. Yeah, misogyny noir is really, uh, it's a word that's really at the intersections of misogyny and anti-Blackness. And it's something that specifically is experienced by Black women. And actually, in that article that you recommended, um, which I read through, they talk about how it was, um, or Moya talks about how it had begun being used as something to represent the misogyny experienced by women of color. Mm-hmm. And she said that she had to make a statement and say specifically, this is about Black women. This is about our specific experiences and how we walk in the world and how the world treats us as a result. Yeah. Um, and that's something that is so commonplace, right? When people start with Black women, right? Black women kind of introduce this experience of violence and then it's like well actually all women experience Mm -hmm. this right and it's that like erasure of the fact that actually even if all women experience a particular type of violence right usually black women experience it the most Mm -hmm. right or or particularly kind of concentrated 
form of violence. Um, and yeah, so Moya and Trudy really talk about how like black women experience sexism that stems from like this white supremacy, ableism, and these like capitalist structures, right? That frame us both um, black trans and cis women as quote unquote, not real women, right? So there's mm-hmm. all these discourses about us not even being able to be seen in actual womanhood, like our experiences are not reflected there. Um, and I think what's also interesting is how she says she started in like medical discourses too. Right. So like mm-hmm. how medicine kind of frames how black women are seen as not real women. Mm-hmm. That has real implications in maternal health today. Definitely. Yeah, and I mean, which we're seeing a lot more of. We, we really just saw this with Nicole Fia Mm-hmm. Um, I, I haven't gotten any updates and I'm not sure, um, exactly what she died of, but you know, she, so for those of you who don't know Nicole Thea, she was 24 years old, a YouTuber in the UK, a black woman. Um, and she was eight months pregnant and she died along with her unborn child. And it again speaks to... <laughs> What Brendan was saying, these these very material consequences and harms and violences against specifically Black women. In the UK, maternal mortality rates are five times higher among Black women than white women. And so that is a very specific experience of ours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in the I would say in the US, different reports say different things, but it's anywhere between three to five times. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just, it's weird or weird quote unquote by design some would say (laughs) right that anti-blackness is a global experience um so even as you enter into different countries these things tend to have have similar experiences Mm -hmm. right black women around the world tend to have similar experiences yeah um and what i also liked about um, Moya and Trudy's intervention was just that they were trying to highlight both these kind of historical legacies of racial sexual violence. So what happens when Black women enter into predominantly white spaces or predominantly non-Black spaces, but also what happens within the Black community, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. when Black cis men, most of them straight, tend to dictate Um, or wanted to dictate what black women do with their bodies. Um, And so we see this all the time, all the time on the internet. Mm -hmm. Um, People talk about this all the time. And I'm trying to think this the other day, just um, reading about um, this, or this, I saw this tweet of this black woman who she put, just put a selfie up on the internet mm-hmm. and all the black men in her comments saying she had a tattoo on her forearm and you could see it in the selfie and all the black men in the comments saying, oh, that's like putting a bumper sticker on a Bentley. Like you need to get rid of your tattoo. What? Yes. What? Like you need to get rid of your tattoo. You're beautiful without it. And it's like, did Nobody asked Who your ashy you? self. <laughs> Nobody asked your ashy self to come into my yes. mentions talking about some to get rid of your tattoo. Like, sir, what what are you doing to get rid of your uneven hairline? Like, what <laughs> what like if we're gonna talk <laughs> we're gonna talk about body modifications here? <laughs> 
there's something much more urgent happening on, mm-hmm. on your end of the computer screen. Okay, so let's uh, right. let's address that. But like, it's all these in, like kind of just insidious ways that this massage noir pops up that we don't even think about it in, in the ways that we like perpetuated against even mm-hmm. as black women, like we perpetuated yes. against each other. So I, yeah, it's, it's just so prevalent. Evergreen. 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 I, I actually, <laughs> I have something to say on that, but um, you reminded me of when Moya Bailey said that part of it is about us failing to be desirable. Mm. And when I read that, that really hit. It's like a continual, there's a continuous reminder that we cannot be considered desirable. Beauty, attractiveness, these things are ultimately unattainable because, and let me, before anybody jumps down my throat and says Black women, that I'm saying that Black women aren't beautiful, that's not what I'm saying. I'm Mm -hmm. saying that the standard of beauty is whiteness. Mm -hmm. And Black women ultimately cannot be white. And thus, we can't ever truly be seen by the world as beautiful, as meeting these kinds of beauty standards and expectations. And so we're just continually in the cycle where we are failing to be that. And that itself, misogynoir is essentially built into patriarchy and capitalism. I mean, it's all, it's built into everything, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's all connected. And mm-hmm. yeah, I really appreciate you highlighting that. And I I think it's really interesting that um that even as black women are excluded from these beauty standards, you still find fe- our features being incorporated into them. Mm-hmm. Um and so there's something beautiful about blackness. One of the beautiful things about blackness is that it's exclusion. Um our features, right, that are constantly excluded, find their ways being included into these beauty standards because you can't help but deny, right, Mm -hmm. that, like, we're beautiful people. And so, which is highlighted when you see cis Black men make comments about white women who have certain features, right? So, like, Mm -hmm. white women who have body fat that deposits in certain places, so they have thicker thighs or, you know, rounder hips, and it's like, Oh, black women, y'all are in trouble. White girls are leveling mm-hmm. up. And it's like, how are we in trouble if they're coming to our standard? Right. So like that's the you know, this but this logic thing, that yeah. actually highlights, all right, this um massage noir too. Um, mm-hmm. where it's like the only thing that keeps black women in high standing is oh, your your body, right? And yeah. um and the way you look. So Mm-hmm. That puts a lot of pressure on those of us who don't look that way. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I'm just, I'm looking for this quote because I just read Thick. So I just read Thick by Tressie McMillan Cottom. Um, yes, so. you are. You have been reading this summer. <laughs> like, I also want to applaud you for that. Like, <laughs> I feel like this summer I have just been I have had trying my, to get my life together. <laughs> I have had my moments, but I'm just trying and, to find this quote. <laughs> yeah, so I've been reading Thick, the book by uh, Tressa McMillan Cotton, and she she has this line which is 
a perfect encapsulation of what we were just talking about. She says that so long as the beautiful people are white, what is beautiful at any given time can be renegotiated without redistributing capital from white to non-white people. Mm. And that is Mm. the word. Like that is exactly what we're talking about right now. So people who are not black can have black features and be celebrated for them. But when black women have them, they're not considered beautiful because you can just rework what beauty means in order to incorporate whiteness and exclude blackness. Yeah. And I think that's really, that's it. That makes a lot of sense. Um, And you know, she's a, she's a sociologist, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad sociology is, Coming around. That's okay. If you don't know me, um, and you might not, um, I always had this thing about sociology as an anthropologist. Um, and so I, I always find it cool when sociologists want to do like do deep analyses of things because I feel like it's it's so much of sociology has been pointing to black people as the problem. And so when black sociologists are able to use that tool that has pointed to black people as being the problem and problematize like it itself yeah beautiful work i love i love to see it all right well i will put that in the show notes you (laughs) read that but i did want to go back to what you were saying about misogynoir Mm -hmm. and how it can be perpetuated in the community and i was watching the grapevine and i I know you haven't caught on you haven't kind of gotten into the grapevine yet have you all right. Well, mm-hmm. the grapevine, it's um, essentially it's a roundtable discussion show and they'll have panels of different groups of people, um, of black people, just discussing different subjects. And so in one of their recent episodes, they were talking about trans women or trans women were talking about the ways that cis women and even black women exclude them from womanhood. Yeah, that is like that is one of the things Yeah, that I was pointing to earlier about thinking about how we as black women perpetuate misogynoir against each other. And this, what we don't understand though, as cis women, right, is when we make those moves to focus on reproductive capacity as a measurement Mm -hmm. of like, as a measure of being a quote unquote true woman, first of all, you're making the assumption that trans women aren't able to have children, which is Mm -hmm. false, right? And then also it's pointing to these histories that call us as black women lesser than women because we Mm -hmm. served as as breeders, right, on plantations. So in our attempt to scramble for this womanhood that as Alyssa, as you were explaining so eloquently earlier is is unattainable, Mm -hmm. right? And actually is defined by our inability to reach for it and, and grasp it. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. That um, we want perpetuate violence against each other, but then also reframe ourselves in this framework that oppresses us, right? Like mm-hmm. being a being a woman is not dependent on whether or not you can carry a child or do whatever. Cause if so, there are lots of cis women who are unable to do that exactly. for a variety of reasons. And you're also pointing to them and saying that they're not real women. And this is why I believe this is one of the reasons why when, when people miscarry, they have set there's like, part of like the deep depression that can come mm-hmm. with that it's because of all these societal meanings around 
what it means to be a quote unquote real woman. And so it's like, exactly. at least some of the women that I know who have miscarried remarked about feeling like failures um, to their families, to their partners. For, and it's like, you're not a failure because you did, you weren't able to carry a, a fetus, right? Like you're, you're not a failure. This is, it happens. Um, but because so much of white femininity, white womanhood is connected to carrying and bearing children. And also, and again, black womanhood, right. is also tied to that. Um, we get caught up in, in all these different matrices and it's just, it's just really violent. Um, and so we've talked about like how trans women pointing to trans black trans women pointing to the ways that they experience this, these violence from all sides. Um, Mm -hmm. and so there's vocabulary that's developed around that, um, called trans massage noir, right. Which, which specifically speaks to the experiences of black trans women, um, that we cannot erase, um, as cis women talking about massage noir, right. We, we can't erase the ways that, um, trans black women face their own specific type of misogyny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of the statistics that I just found astounding that uh, Moya Bailey and Trudy referred to was that the life expectancy of a Black trans woman is 35, 35 years old. I was just, I yeah, was so that, taken aback by that. Um, oh, and oh. I just, I just think that that is an unacceptable violence that we as black women, as black cis women, we need to acknowledge and reckon with. And I think that it's unacceptable that we reproduce that kind of misogynoir within our own communities. Mm-hmm. And I think since, cause that article is a little older since then, I think they have the number 35 has been questioned. Mm. Um, so it might be, longer than that now i don't have an exact Mm -hmm. number but it's it's definitely a shorter life expectancy than cis black women and i mean all of our life expectancies are shorter than white women right so Mm -hmm. um white trans or cis women so in the ways like we as cis black women perpetuate violence and right we we open up space for cis black men who kill who kill us all, right? Like who kill both cis and trans black women, right? Yes. We're actually much more likely to die at the hands of a cis black man than we are at any other demographic. Um, We don't have to talk about that. We're going to have another episode about that. (laughs) Um, But the ways that we open up um, or we can open up violence um, and invite violence onto black trans women is, is, inexcusable um and so in my own journey in thinking about my own position as a cis black woman um i have been just really listening to black trans women in my life and thinking about Mm -hmm. what are the ways that they ask me to to protect them um and so being at i was at a protest you know okay and y'all don't rag on me about it but yes i was at a protest um <laughs> during covid and it was i'm protect. sure you were masked you were masked oh oh mask down even if it wasn't covid you have to wear a mask when you're out there because people that's how people get caught up um and so 
Yeah, the, uh, a black trans woman, she she spoke and she was like, why is it that we have to die to be heard kind mm. of thing? Like, why is it that, you know, what you hear about black trans women is that they've been killed again, right? And it's like, what about those of us who are living, who are marching, who are doing these things? Like, we also need to be listened to. Um, and yeah, I, I just think about in my own scholarship, right? How to be so careful about making sure that I don't erase trans black women and girls experiences um, in an effort to define what it means to experience violence as a black woman or to, to um, what does it mean to like be vulnerable as a black woman? Um, and so I think my challenge um, definitely is making sure that I am attentive, that I'm reading, that I'm listening, and that I'm checking myself each and every step of the way. Mm-hmm. Because the last thing I want to do is enter or, or create a world or, or movement or a freedom space where Black trans women do not feel like they can be included and invited and prioritized. Like, if I, if yes. I do that... Who the hell, who, who the hell <laughs> am I like freeing, right? If, if black trans women cannot be protected and safe in the world that I want to create, then what is the, what is the purpose of that world? Um, like, and yeah, I mean, that's kind of where I'm at with that. I don't know. I don't know how to write about that in a way that's legible to our department or to, you know, mm-hmm. anthropology at, at writ large, but um, that's like where I'm sitting at right now in yeah. my thinking and for my own research. Mm-hmm. You will get there. You will get there. I believe in you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So also I wanted to think about like um, massage noir and these kind of commercial depictions of black women mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. especially like dark skinned black women Um these women are typically depicted as subhuman, as animal-like, always angry, super strong, um, you know, basically these, the opposite of these kind of white standards for femininity and beauty that depict women as like fragile, mm-hmm. as people to be protected. Um, and one example of that I would say would be like this idea that Black women are impermeable. So I know Serena Williams talks about it a lot in, in dealing with like her own maternal health care, back to mm-hmm. that crisis, um, where people couldn't believe that she was experiencing the pain that she was experiencing. And and you've probably seen the political cartoons about her mm-hmm. where it's where she's depicted as like larger than life and you know, these things that these really harmful images of her when it's like, no, she's she's just the best best athlete in the world right Mm -hmm. and like that's that's it um and people are intimidated by her strength and her prowess and and, but also um she talks about having these moments where she has to show herself as soft in order to still be seen as like womanly in a sense um and so basically and it's funny that you know she has to show herself as soft in a world where black women aren't even really allowed to be soft Mm -hmm. we are almost in this space where we are expected to be strong and expected to bear the brunt of any kinds of violence and harm and treatment that we receive in the world. And 
being soft is looked at as a failure. Again, again, I mean, misogynoir comes down to Black women failing to meet certain expectations that we never can meet. Right. And it's, it's like literally everywhere you turn your head, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, it's, and all it does is really just create these conditions where we as Black women can be treated as lesser, right, in reality, while also having these expectations that will serve as like mammy, auntie, mm-hmm. uh, protector, um, on Twitter, right? They, they'll treat us like bulldogs. They'll say, oh, so-and-so said something racist. Get them, girl. And it's like, <laughs> wait, wait a minute. Like, don't put me in these conversations where I can endure violence um, yes. because you want me to serve as a symbol for something else. Um, and I think I'll get to that a little bit later in, in talking about a particular um person who put a black woman in this position but if I'm thinking about also just other examples in my own life of when I have witnessed massage noir like and you know I will be upfront about this like I am a short darker skinned black woman you know I have like a particular body type that would lend people to like mammify me at times or like over-sexualize me at others. Um, And so I have experienced a lot of massage noir in my life um, that I can point to. And one time though in particular, which, you know, tell a girl, I alluded alluded to this story to Alyssa. um, And when we were thinking about this episode and I was like, girl, let me tell you um, about this time that I, I used to teach high school. And if you're a former student of mine, hey, boo, I miss you. I love you. Um, You're at the center of my heart always. Um, I used to teach high school. And I had this person who worked with me. Um, He was a black man who was in his early 40s. And this is important. Later, I am in my... just turned 27 last month. Um, But at that time, I was 23. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... Ooh, child. I just, ooh, oh God. Okay. I was you just aged yourself. Um, <laughs> you just aged yourself. Did, I did. But you know, it's, it's important for the context of the story. So okay. All right. <laughs> this man, this man, he, um, he worked at the school with me and he um, was an Aquarius. That's also important. For, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> just uh, kidding. Uh, why the Aquarius <laughs> hate? Why the Aquarius hate? Um. And so he would do things like pop up in my classroom every once in a while. And I didn't really pay that much attention to it. But one of my students, she noticed one day that like he would be in my classroom supposedly performing his job duties, but he would always be like staring at me. And so she called my attention to that. And then I was just like, okay. So after he also used to do this thing where he would pop up in my classroom after school to like have these conversations with me. And supposedly he was engaged. So um, we're talking and he starts talking about how he really enjoys hip hop. And so I said, well, you know, I'm not really a big fan of a lot of the rap music um, or popular rap music artists like ASAP Rocky because they say really damaging things about black women. Mm-hmm. Like for example, ASAP Rocky had an interview where he was like, I would never date a dark skinned black woman. Um, and <sighs> as a dark skinned black woman, 
I was like, okay, well then I will never spend my coins on you. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was like, well, what's so offensive about that? And I was just like, well, you know, um, that's misogynist. And, you know, I'm a feminist. I don't believe in like supporting someone who's a misogynist. And he said, well, it's not misogyny if he only dislikes black women. (laughs) And I was like, wait, what? And he was like, it's not misogyny if he only dislikes black women. He has to dislike like Asian women or white women, too. And I was like, wait, how? So then I said, so you don't think black women are real women? And he's like, no, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying like, you have to like dislike more women in order for it to be like actual misogyny because I don't like black women. And, (gasps) you know, so that would make me misogynist. (laughs) (laughs) And then, so long story short, this man said that he didn't like black women because he dated someone in high school who um who left him because no scrubs came out and she realized that he was a scrub and so he was holding on to that experience from when he was like 15 to 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 talk about how he disliked black women um in the future even though (laughs) he was always in in my face um and trying to like spend time with me um and it eventually got very inappropriate but yeah so like just an example of just one of the few ex- many not a few the many examples i have um but yeah Alyssa, what do you think mm-hmm. about massage noir have you experienced it in your life um well i just well i just want to say that he deserves the aquarius hate that you gave at the beginning <laughs> um know his moon though so i can't really say too much (laughs) i just say that all i know is he's an aquarius (laughs) and um i think that again this goes back to black women just like you said black women not being real women i mean if somebody hates black women actually you know what i was going to say this is what i was thinking as you were saying that this is why it's important to coin terms and i've heard a lot of people Mm -hmm who have critiqued and I myself have thought this, do we really need another word for something? And he called you on the semantics of that word, which is so often used to undermine someone's argument because the word that you're using doesn't, or, or the, the situation that you're referring to using a certain word isn't specific and isn't exact and doesn't meet the definition wow. of that word exactly. And he called you on that. And that Mm -hmm. is why it is important to coin new terms. That is why we need the word misogynoir. That's why we need to think about trans misogynoir. Mm. That's what I wanted to say. Period. 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 (laughs) That's true. That's real. Because his literal thinking was like, to be a misogynist means you hate women. And black women aren't all the women out there. So in order to hate women, you got to hate all the women out there. And it's like, no, you just any woman. That's like, that's it. But um, that's, yeah, that's real. Like, because we get into the debate about the semantics and the meaning. And it's just like, well, you know, actually, I only hate certain types of this, that, and the third. And it's like, no. And it's just, it's it's a way to deflect the conversation. It's a way to deflect Mm -hmm. from yourself and to deflect from the conversation. And I find it annoying. 
But back to what you asked me, I mean, you know, we were talking about this and I did have some trouble coming up with a story and I didn't want to just say, okay, I finally, I came up with a story and tell everyone the story. I wanted to talk about, you know, why I did find that I had this trouble. And I think that a lot of it has to do with various forms of my positionality and positionality by that. I mean, the way that I walk in the world, what I've experienced growing up. And I think one thing is that I do have skin color privilege. I'm a lighter skinned black woman and I grew up in Canada and in Canada, you're just kind of taught not to really think about race. At least when I was growing up, I think that there's a lot more being discussed now, of course, but when I was growing up, I was just, I never thought that if I didn't get something, it was down to my race. And Mm -hmm. having moved to the US just a couple years ago, this is something that I have had to think about and learn about um, because I mean, I've understood it theoretically but I've always existed in this space where I could rationalize or deny anti-blackness and, and, you know, I could find some kind of way to mental gymnastics myself out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's something that I have been reckoning with and working on in the time that I've moved here and like learning from you and learning from other black colleagues has been really important to that. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I just hadn't categorized my experiences in that particular way. And again, that's why it's so important to have these names for things is because that's when you can really start putting, putting ideas and experiences into a certain box and relating them to other people and realizing that actually this isn't just a one-time experience. This right. is an ongoing systemic mm-hmm. issue. And that's also a reason that we need to name things and give words to specific experiences that are different from others. But I will tell you, there was a time (laughs) (laughs) that um, I was having a going away party for the first year that I went to Martinique. So I was a teaching assistant in Martinique and that's where I I now do my research. Um, And it was just after I graduated. So we were having this going away party. It was a big, exciting thing. And I had had friends and family were there and my mom invited uh, a friend of hers. He's a white man. And after the party, um, he said to her privately, he didn't say this to me, but he said to my mom, you know, why does Alyssa have to be so loud all of the time? Mm -mm. Mm -mm. And I, (laughs) I was, yeah. I don't even yeah, know where to sure. go with that. Sure. You, you're not loud. Um, For him, a white yeah. man, I was loud. I was, I was being too much. I mm-hmm. was uh, taking up too much space. I think that's actually what he really was saying, is that I was taking up yeah. too much space. Yeah, Despite you know, the fact that the party to... was for me. <laughs> right. How are you going to take up too much space at your own damn party? It's, mm-hmm. it's my party. I cry if I want to, right? Like... And I will be loud be. if I want to. I will laugh loudly <laughs> if I want to. I will talk about myself for the entire time if I want to. It was about me. <laughs> yeah, like, I think that, yeah, wow. I, I mean, the only thing I can really say to that is that I really am glad that you are showing your own self and your own voice now. And, like, 
Mm-hmm. Allow yourself to take up that space because, you know, if we are silent, then we're actually playing part and parcel into this world trying to silence us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, at times our silence can be strategic, but yeah, definitely thinking about how in that moment you should have been able to celebrate yourself. Um, yeah. And it's always something about black women some would say blackness in general, but I think black women specifically, we're always seen as too much, no matter how thin we are, no matter how, you know, thick we might be or, <laughs> or you know, tall or short, um, how, how soft our voice is or how loud we are. There's always something about us that is too much, it's, it's excess in, in yeah. spaces. Um, and I was, I was having fun. And so- right. Black joy is just too much. Exactly. Black joy is just too much for this white man. Like, Like, if it's not centered around (laughs) him, then it's not worth it, right? It's not, no, it's not mm, 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 centered. Good riddance. (laughs) So you were saying that, you know, he was really not trying to be in a place to observe your joy and yourself. And I just think about like, how many times have black women been in spaces that's supposed to be dedicated to them mm. or spaces that they've created and they have not been able to celebrate themselves. Yes. Um, like I know you, we had a conversation, right? About the me too earlier and just mm-hmm. how black women can break open spaces. Um, but then immediately be erased from the spaces. So I know you wanted to, to say more about that. No, I mean, that, that was basically what I thought would be a really good way to talk about what we're reading this week um, mm-hmm. and our what we're reading segment. So we'll just tell you a little text that we read this week and kind of how it relates to the, uh, to our kind of topic theme of the day. And so this week we read Looking for Zora by Alice Walker and so Alice Walker was integral into, you know, bringing Zora Neale Hurston's work back into, or not even back, but into the mainstream and mm-hmm. really bringing her that renown that um, she was due, essentially. So I'd actually, I've been reading a lot about her life and she, Zora Neale Hurston was a woman that you could describe as unruly. Or if you want to use Sadia Hartman's word, wayward. I think that, and I and I mean that in the most affectionate way possible. She was mm-hmm. just someone who was unapologetically herself. And so actually that's something that made her super unpopular during the Harlem Renaissance. Um, people just thought that her paying attention to Black stories and the way that they speak and their pleasure and womanhood were actually counter-revolutionary. They just weren't, they weren't working for the kinds of like uh, politics that people were looking to push forward at the time. And so Richard Wright, Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Richard Wright, he actually said about her novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God, which I think a lot of people have read in high school. It's Mm -hmm. a very popular text. People know it. It's renowned. Um, He actually said that it contained, quote, no theme, no message, no thought, end quote. Um, Hmm. 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 
And so no because message. of Yeah. No <laughs> message. No thought. <laughs> no theme. And so well, because of the message for like <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> I'm like, yo, what is the message for Native Son? Yeah, um, yeah. But I'm gonna let you go. I'm gonna let you go. Let me not do that. <laughs> um. So yeah. So so because of this uh, like unpopularity, because of the unpopularity of her ideas, um, her work fell into obscurity. And so in this essay, in looking for Zora, Alice Walker is kind of rediscovering the story of Zora Neale Hurston. She's, she's gone back to Eatonville, um, you know, where she, where she was born and where she collected her tall tales uh, for mules and men. And she's really trying to understand what happened in Zora's life. Like after she kind of, after she left New York. So I don't know, had you, had you read this essay before and you know, what, what kind of struck you about it? No, I hadn't. I'm actually really glad that we started like, you know, this podcast is Zora's Daughters. Let's not start with her, yeah. right? In her own <laughs> story. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, brilliant, brilliant design. Um, mm-hmm. I commend, I commend the author. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I had not read it before at all. And um, I think what struck me the most in, in thinking about what we've been talking about, massage noir, erasure, mm-hmm. Um, was all the uncertainty around her death and the conditions of her burial. Mm-hmm. But then what seemed to be a paradox to me was just how loved she was by the community. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was just, it was odd to me because it's like, okay, what does it mean to to love a Black woman and take care of her in and after death? Um, which, you know, is connected to yes. my research, of course, but... Yeah, just like, oh, like, they love you, but not necessarily enough to to really be able to give you the burial that at least us, you know, 40 years later, looking back, are like, you know, she deserved, mm-hmm. um, well, 40 years from when this essay was written, right? Yeah. So it's just like, I don't know, that was really just striking to me. Um, and then also, I was just, thinking about like how Alice Walker felt like she had to lie about her own position to Zor in order to get this information. She had to pretend to be her niece. Um, right. And it's kind of like, Oh, like, and not even like her real niece. Right. It's like, Oh, <laughs> real, quote unquote, real niece. Right. Like <laughs> I am her illegitimate niece. Um, She's not illegitimate. Oh, yeah, and, but then it's like, you know, <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, you're like, you're not illegitimate, um, which is like, okay, thanks, sir. You know, thanks for patting yeah. me back and affirming my existence. Like, yeah, of course. <laughs> um, and so that <laughs> that was also very interesting to me because it's like, it made me think about research practices um, and how, and it's like, what are the ways that we lie to ourselves and lie to others and mm. get the information that we need? Mm-hmm. But that's also, you know, I guess an anthropologist thing. Um, the the little sneaky ways that I've had to <laughs> enter into answering questions um, mm-hmm. uh, about my own research or, or my own thinking about things. Yeah. But getting back to Zora, I think also the imagery of uh, Alice Walker and I forget the young woman who was helping her find Zora's Charlotte? grave. I believe 
but wading through that grass, right? And it's kind of like the danger that's also there. Um, the danger in memorializing Black women. I don't know. I'm being real symbolic right now. No, I'm being I real, mean, I'm, you are. Oh, like, this is beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> like, just like the actual literal danger to put the, the risk that you put yourself in to actually do the work of memorializing mm-hmm. a Black woman who, for all intents and purposes, is written off by yeah. all of these other Black people during her time because they saw her as pandering Mm-hmm. Um, to white folks. Um, and it's really interesting for Richard Wright to to make that kind of comment about her considering Native Son, right? And like mm-hmm. the things that Native Son exposes about Black men's place in, in the academy or in literature or right. in, in however you want to configure them. Um, but yeah, what, what are you thinking? What else struck you? <sighs> I mean, you, what you said was just so, so beautiful. I feel like I can't, <laughs> you can, can't, I can't you follow can. that up, but I think <laughs> one of the things I was wondering is, you know, what, what prompted Alice Walker's interest in Zora Neale Hurston mm-hmm. and, and she didn't, I was hoping that she would address that at some point and maybe she does in some of her other texts. So if there's a listener out there who wants to leave that in a comment somewhere, just let me know, but I was Please tell us about about that interest um, in Zora Neale Hurston. And then the other thing, what, what I thought about the, the uncertainty around her life and death um, was that it was a, a continuation of what she herself had done. So I think one of the things that I read about her is that she would always lie about her age. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and one of the reasons for this was just, she wanted, you know, she wanted to be mysterious, but also she wanted to continue getting her education. So I think she was in her twenties or thirties when she enrolled at Barnard as an undergraduate. So she wanted to continue her education. So she was constantly just telling these, you know, telling these tall tales, telling these stories. Um, and so I just think that she's such an enigmatic figure and this this story again kind of reiterated and played into that idea of her and and I read this text I I think it was an essay online it might it might have been about Tayari Jones or written by Tayari Jones I'm not sure but if someone out there listening can point me to where this was written (laughs) I would really appreciate it Um, again and so the writer asked you know, why in the majority of Zora's photos is she looking away? She's never looking directly in the camera. And her response was that you shouldn't stare directly into the sun. Mm. You know, that's what the writer came up with. You shouldn't stare directly in the sun. And Zora was just a woman who was powerfully herself. And unfortunately, she was pushed out and disliked and hated for that very reason. Yeah, I think to just the circumstances of her death in her life um, and like how she died, basically, well, I mean, you know, the uncertainty around it, but some people were like, oh, she died starving and hungry and mm-hmm. hurt. And and then you read the essay and it's like, well, some people are like, no, she had a stroke and she yeah. chose not to go to the home mm-hmm. that would take care of her. Um, 
but then also how we never really get to see her body, but then it comes out through in the essay that Zora was actually kind of a, like a bigger woman. Um, right. Which I was also yeah. like kind of surprised by. I was like, Oh, you know, maybe, maybe she also experienced things around her, like her size that we don't know. Um, and so also like part of that being part of the mystery too, because um in the ways that like black women's bodies in the academy, like most black women I know who are academics are fairly thin mm-hmm. women and and um and I'm like not. So I think about like mm-hmm. what that does for how I'm perceived, like how right. that, how my blackness is perceived through mm-hmm. my literal, like the the shape of my body. Right. right. And so just like what were the ways that no, perhaps like I mean, she was a lighter skinned woman. Or like, so what are the ways that like her body, just mm-hmm. a little, her body allowed her to shift in and out of spaces that right. we we will probably never really know. But what we do have are these black men saying all this, you know, <sighs> okay. mess about her. Listen, um, <laughs> okay, so <laughs> this this I so again was reading about her life, and there's a really long essay about her in the New Yorker. Um, and it's from, I think that is from 1996. I'll link to it in the show notes anyways, so people can read it. Um, but Darwin Turner, he wrote one of the first kind of really important analyses or considerations of, uh, the Harlem Renaissance. And, you know, he actually justified Hurston's erasure from the from the renaissance at the time so he wrote this in 1971 so he justified her erasure from from stories and from like the renown of the harlem renaissance because he said that she had never been more than a wandering minstrel Mm -mm. and then he went on to say that it was quote eccentric but perhaps appropriate for her to returned to Florida to take a job as a cook and maid for a white family and to die in poverty, end quote. So he was basically saying that there was like, this was poetic justice because that was actually what she had proposed for black people in her stories. Is that like, this is that poverty and working for white people is the best life that they can live. Um, like, textbook misogynoir <laughs> like text literally textbook. it's in it's printed on the page it's I, in a textbook yeah yeah no um just no to all of that like no one mm-hmm. deserves to die in part like I'm, like what um like that's I, not poetic that's not poetic just at, at all and, and it's especially just jarring thinking about how popular her work is now, how popular she is now. Like, and just to know that she died in relative like obscurity. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Or, you know, this critic quote unquote, I mean, can we even really, (laughs) this is not appropriate to make a comment on this people's lives like this, but that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's, I don't even know what to say about it. Like the, mm-hmm. the word escapes me in the moment, but it's it's horrible to think that like 
I don't know, even now as an academic, right? I'm not chasing money or fame. I mean, if I were, I would, would not be doing <laughs> <laughs> I would not be a PhD student, um, <laughs> but it's like, I also know though that like, if I were to die in, in relative obscurity and like in poverty, that would still be an affront, even if I don't make a major theoretical or literal, like literature intervention, like mm-hmm. that would still be horrible, um, exactly. my low level self, right? So like, yeah. what? what I know it's just all you can do is sigh literally and then also bring her stories back to life which is what Alice Walker did and I mean she kind of rose to popularity during the Harlem Renaissance and then she you know people kind of got tired of her for various reasons I'm sure that was mostly black men um, yeah, they so tend to get tired of us the fastest. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was—it was like it was through this process of gatekeeping that she was like pushed mm-hmm. out and into obscurity. So she just left New York and like never went back. But gatekeeping, I think, is like that idea is kind of a good way for us to segue into our final segment, which is what in the world? What in the My world? world? Like what? What? <laughs> what in the world? So, like, what in the world is going on with Essence, <laughs> Essence Magazine? Mm-hmm. I just thought that this situation was the perfect example of misogynoir. You have a black man running a company that literally caters to black women, and yet those same women were mistreated sexually harassed, pushed out of the company. Mm. And it's just, it's crazy to me. It's crazy to me that you would have this. And then the thing, like, like all I have, to, I don't know. I was just like, what in the misogynoir? <laughs> <laughs> what in the misogynoir is this? Yeah, I used to, so I used to read Essence as like, a child. Okay, yes, clock me for that. I was a nerdy <laughs> child. Um, I, I used know. To, like, Who wasn't reading that stuff? Who wasn't reading magazines? And, and I would, that were too grown for us as well. <laughs> literally too grown. Um, <laughs> and would read some of the most bizarre stories, you know, Black women writing in for help and about their relationships. And never in my mind had I imagined that there would be a Black man behind it. And now as an mm. adult, it makes a lot of sense, mm. like the content, <laughs> the content about beauty, mm-hmm. and the kind of the descriptions to certain, you know, beauty standards that we talked about earlier. Um, content around like fashion and all these things that kind of just now looking back, I'm like, oh yeah, definitely, I could see the black man behind the scenes mm-hmm. t- telling black women that this is supposed to be what you're supposed to look like. Um, yeah. So yeah, just to hear the the violence. And I think you were saying that like, isn't, wasn't it that the issue was that his wife was also a, an employee there? Like she was working. She, she's the, and, she was the head of HR. So while he was sexually harassing these black women and employees of his, they didn't feel comfortable going to HR about it because his wife was the head of HR. So what, 
kind of anonymity would you have at a company where the person who's sexually harassing you and the person that you have to report that to is the wife of the person who's sexually harassing you. It doesn't like right. make it makes sense out here. And we've but, all seen like, enough Tyler Perry movies to know what happens when you tell the wife. I'm just oh, kidding. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, no. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> but we, I mean, we all know what happens, right? It's, it's like, yeah. you're going to get fired. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, and now that now it seems like this would be the time for all of these things to come forward and these women would be listened to and heard, but we still have this kind of societal context drenched in massage noir where it's like, mm-hmm. even still and now, Black women victims of all types of violence, right, don't yeah. get listened to or it's like their concerns are just put into um to baskets where they're easily written off um and so you know the question well why did you continue to work there if you saw this happening blah blah blah. and it's like because i need money to put food in my mouth and Mm -hmm. put clothes on my back and to have four walls around me and a roof um so yeah like that that also really played a role in how these women were able to even report what happened to them um and then just like just the shock. I was shocked by just learning about the number of white people that worked at Essence. Like, okay. <laughs> Listen, that is the, one of the things that just, wow. Okay. I know we're centered. We're, we're, we're meant to be centering black women mm-hmm. and our stories and our experiences, but I just want to talk about how he hired so the CEO, he hired uh, a white woman to head up the sales team, which means that they would, you know, be going to companies and selling essence to, to different companies, I guess, for advertisers and things like that. And so she's a white woman. I, I believe she was, you know, I'm not even going to say names of companies, <laughs> uh, but well, she, was from another, <laughs> she was from another, another large publisher. And so she then hired a group of white women to, or white people to work on this, on the sales team. And so they would go and they would pitch essence to potential advertisers. Um, and essentially what they're supposed to be doing is talking about the value of black women, of advertising to black women. And they got called out by one of the, one of their clients and just said, you're not doing a good job at this. Like you're not, this isn't working and you're not convincing us that we need to that we should be working with you or advertising with you. And just like the incompetence of whiteness is astounding. So much so that Yo, when you are being what? paid, you are being <laughs> paid dollars and cents to highlight the value and sell the value of black women. You still fail at it. Like the audacity, the audacity of that caucasity. Like (laughs) literally, I was about to like the caucasity um, of it all. And it's just like, but it also just goes to show you in the CEO's mind, I'm sure he was like, oh, who knows how to get things sold? Mm -hmm. I'm going to get, I want to have, you know, Johnson and Johnson, right, you know, sell their 
baby powder products in essence. So they need to see someone who looks like them in that room. And mm-hmm. it's like, so I'm sure everyone was confused on all sides. Like, wait a minute. It, what? Who? I, I would be confused. Who? I too would but, be confused. <laughs> and then also I think just speaks to just like, um, something else that I was thinking about in, in the world and in, in the academic world, I'll say we'll bring it to academia. Mm-hmm. Um, where we see these, this gatekeeping happen, happening um, mm-hmm. in these liberal spaces where we have these like these white women, um, most of the time, sometimes it's white men in these powerful positions who see themselves as doing something good um, and diversifying by inviting like black men into these spaces. They say, okay, we're, we want diversity, or we're going to we're going to get black men because black men are are scarce. They are underrepresented. They are endangered, quote unquote. They are just like just not here in the academy when actually when you look at the numbers, right? Black women there are far more black men in higher positions mm-hmm. than black women in the academy. Um because, because they benefit kind of, they benefit from patriarchy. Yeah, they benefit from patriarchy and they also benefit from like white liberal aspirations to like uh remediate racism right so it's it's like yes this this thing of just like oh well we know that there's so few of y'all because you know and mass incarceration etc etc so they're like well we gotta we gotta reverse that but through representation um and i remember in college specifically hearing that being the reason why um instead of hiring a black woman um, for a position, um, they hired a black man because he said he wanted to reverse the racism of the academy. This one <laughs> white man said that was his role and his job. Um, mm-hmm. And then that black man that they hired ended up terrorizing all of the black women um, in the student group that I was a part of. Oh, yikes. But, you know, it, and, and that's what tends to happen, right, is that usually also these processes select for black men who may not have the most like feminist orientations mm-hmm. around things. And so they, they kind of perpetuate the status quo where they become these like black faces who serve a, a role of fulfilling a quota, but then also just like perpetuate white supremacist, patriarchal violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my thing has been in, in these academic spaces is like, how can we be thoughtful so that we're not just doing these politics of, of like respectability where if black people experience violence from other black people, they don't talk about it because they want to be seen as like, they don't want to muddy up the image of the race, right. Or reinforce stereotypes. So like, how do we think about that critically and also think about these politics of representation where Mm -hmm. it's like, well, if at least if one of us is there, then it doesn't really matter. You know what we say, at least we're there, which is not true. Like integration does not necessarily mean that people are activists. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, maybe in a future episode, we could talk more about that. But like one of the faults of the civil rights movement was, was kind of that move of saying like, if we're there, it's, it's progress, it's better. Um, Mm -hmm. But not looking at the necessarily the quality or the politics of who's Mm -hmm. there and what that does, especially because they come at a lot of the times this integration comes at the expense of like, of black women, black queer folks, yeah. black trans people, 
black gender non-conforming people, it, it tends to like these people take up space um, that they could then open up to other people who have much more radical or even progressive politics around things. Um, and yeah, I, I made a very public moment on Twitter about <laughs> that, about a particular um, black man author whose work I found to be damaging for yeah. women like for women like me, um, you know, black queer women, and to see the response from other black women who were just like, well, the reason why we don't critique other black people in front of everyone to see is because there's so few of us who even get that access to power. Mm -hmm. And it's like, but what is he doing with that access of power? Yeah. Is he, is he actually making it better for other black people or is he just amassing power and wealth for himself? Exactly. Um, and if, it, and if that's the type of movement that we as academics want to ascribe to, then like what the, you know, that's not necessarily something that I want my work to be reflective of. So mm -hmm. I've just also been thinking about that too. Yeah. Um, I mean, you want to be part of the liberation. We're looking for liberation. We're not just mm -hmm. looking for representation. So what, what has overall been the response to your thread? How would you characterize so that response? Um, it's been interesting. I think I have gotten a lot of still even now people are still sharing it, which to me is odd. I felt like Twitter has like a two day life cycle, but you know, I mean, mm -hmm. as long as it's helpful. Um, and so one thing, so a, a section of black people, activists who are like, thank you. We've been looking for something easy to refer people to, to mm -hmm. say, this is why you don't need to read this particular book, which is my original intent was to like, give them that. Mm -hmm. So I'm happy. Then there's like a section of well-meaning um, white folks who, um, who, sh who tag me in things or like tag my thread in other threads mm. um, about anti-racist books. And then I have to decide if I'm even going to follow along or what, um, or if I'm just going to let people talk among themselves about that because I, I don't know, I'm not really interested in being involved in everybody's conversation about anti-racism. Um, mm -hmm. Then I saw this one comment though, that I was just like, what? girl, what are you even saying? This white woman was like, and then also I'm just scared of like white supremacist violence too. Yeah. So I'm just like, you know, when people tag me and stuff, I'm always on alert. Cause I'm like, I just don't want to ever put myself in harm's way. But she tagged me and she was like, um, be on the lookout for this new black feminist voice to listen to and tag me and a bunch of other like black women and, and then she was like, these are like scholars and activists to like oh, look up to. And I was like, girl, you don't even know me. And like, how did I automatically become this repositive information mm -hmm. for you? All I did was publish a thread. And, but, and then what was also interesting was one of the other black women that she tagged in that came on and was like, not everybody who's a scholar is an activist and <laughs> don't get it twisted, girl. Like I am a scholar and an activist, but mm. I don't know what these other people are doing out here. Mm. And I was like, okay, that's valid. Um, I used to do 
a lot of activism back in the day. And like, I still am tangentially involved in some things because of my research, um, but took a conscious step away in like 2016 because of just the amount of trauma I had. Mm -hmm. And so it was also causing me to reflect too about my own position as an academic and now being clear from this point forward in my interactions with people like, I do scholarship about activism. In some circles, you can call me a scholar activist, but I would never put myself as being out there on the front lines, mm-hmm. um, like a lot of organizers, um, because that is that is, takes a amount of love and care and work for yourself and for the community yeah. that I don't have the capacity for, um, that I'm starting to build more as I get older. I think I just needed that break for the, for the last like four years, but now I'm starting to feel more energized in that. But mm-hmm. yeah, I'm like, I, but I still would not call myself like an activist primarily. I, right. st- I think I'm still sitting in the, the scholar camp. So what's, what's, the, right what's the woman who tagged you? Was she referring to you as an activist or? Yeah, she kind of mm-hmm. just like, Black feminist theorists, activists to like right. watch out for. And so then from the end, I mean, also, I guess. Is, what was, what um, was even her background? Why, why is it? And I mean, here I we go talking about gatekeeping, right? Like, why is it that she gets to name that she is the person who's going to name those people? And as a result, you got a lot of followers, right? Like after that tweet, a lot of people started following you. So I mean, again, this speaks to the idea of of gatekeeping and who gets to do it and why is it that a white woman is able to open and presumably then close doors to people around ideas of black blackness and black activism. Right. And it was also just weird because I was just like, so now I feel pressure to like get on Twitter every day and teach people. I'm no, like, is that no, what no, no. following me for? <laughs> no. And so I had to like resist that urge <laughs> yeah. of like, let me not, you know, mammify myself. And like, you know, if, if I have a moment, if I feel particularly preachy, I'm gonna get on my little platform <laughs> and say something. But if I don't, then I don't. Um, and I think also that is me taking care of myself, right? It's, yeah. it's being like, okay, even if people are looking for for me to give them certain answers, that doesn't mean that I have to be the one to give them. Um, I don't know. I, I, I never want to be the sole provider of information for people because one, it's a lot of work, honestly. And two, just like the celebrity aspect of things just does not yeah. appeal to me. Um, I feel like you have a celebrity face and voice. What? And no, <laughs> no, I could, I could like, no, you know like actually, I, um, I'll be your manager. I manage you. <laughs> The person, uh, the person who we might talk about on this podcast, but doesn't have a name yet. Um, I mean, not that we'll talk about this person regularly, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but may come up in conversations um, who we haven't come up with a good uh, name for. Actually said once that. I forgot. No, no. It was so good, though. (laughs) It was like, you don't want to be. you want to be a public figure, but not publicly known. I think it was something along mm. those lines. And I was like, mm. yes, I would like my ideas to be publicly known, but I wouldn't want to be to the point where like people could stop me on the show. Like I wouldn't want to be famous. I would never want to be famous. I don't even like taking mm. pictures. 
Um, if you look I always at my, look like a toad in my picture, so I really no, be trying please. to avoid no, them. No, you don't. No, you don't. That's good. Yeah. Not the ones you see, but <laughs> the outtakes. I, I don't like taking pictures, <laughs> and you'll see like on my Instagram, all any picture of me that's on there, it I have sunglasses on, or my face, or I'm like really far away from the camera because I just like I don't like. I don't like records of me out there. <laughs> oh, I get that. You you have a fugitive mindset. I get it. I, oh, I get like it. that. Yes. You know, yeah. a fugitive. We, that's what we're going to reject this photogenic, you know, thing. And we're going to say we're just <laughs> fleeing the surveillance. <laughs> Precisely. The surveillance. Um, <laughs> let me see. There was one more thing I wanted to bring up, but I don't know if we have enough time now, but. I mean, I was thinking, the thing that I was thinking in relation to what you're saying about that book and about, you know, um, Black men as the kind of like giving the impression of diversity while actually reinforcing whiteness um, is what we've seen in like lectures and seminars Mm. um, where, you know, there's a, a Black scholar who comes in and they're talking about Black stuff. And then the other people who are around, they're just like, this was wonderful. Thank you so much. You know, I'm so glad that you are here. And it's like, okay, but where's the critical engagement that you Mm -hmm. had when you were challenging, you know, last week's person about their use of Derrida? You know, where's that smoke? (laughs) Where's Mm -hmm. that energy? Like, I want and i think this is something that we've talked about is just like black people who study black people their work is not seen as rigorous and thus mm-hmm. not deserving of critique and it's like y'all aren't critiquing because you don't want to seem racist or you're not familiar with the emplacement in the literature like and i i every time i see that every time i witness it i just <sighs> I yeah, sign like, because it feels like you're not being taken seriously. Right. And, and it also, I think for some people, okay. So there's like a distinction because I think you're talking about people who like actually could go engage and like should be engaged because they're doing rigorous work and like should be engaged on some level theoretically. Mm. And then there's like the, ex- the excusing of, or like the kind of overlook of work that actually is just not rigorous um or like (laughs) could be pushed to be more rigorous because like the book that you know you and I both read that I I wrote a thread about right like work that could Mm -hmm. actually use some serious peer review to be put in a a better more scholarly position that people don't engage because they don't want to seem racist right so this kind Mm -hmm. of like this guilt that gets in the way of actually um, producing good scholarship or like critiquing good scholarship and not that necessarily white critique of black scholarship validates it or whatever but it's just yeah. like this is just something that we're noticing um, and so mm-hmm. and I think it happens the most though with like with black men in, in their work like it's like this mm-hmm. kind of like not willing to engage on a theoretical level so it's like oh i like the way you write or oh the the way you said those sentences sure was pretty you know and it's like (laughs) okay um um which is feedback i get sometimes in my presentations i don't know if you hear that sometimes where people are like i like i like your tone i like your voice oh Um, no and but like don't engage with what i'm actually saying Mm -hmm. um 
or the engagement with what I'm saying is like something completely off base where it's like, you say black women uh, experience violence, but like, you know, don't other groups of women do too? And like, shouldn't you talk about it as like a comparative note to so that we can really see if the violence against black women is really that bad? And it's like, oh my goodness. That's, I, don't, I don't think that's where I'm going with that. But like, <laughs> you know, just, mm-hmm. and I think also part of it is like ignorance around the literature and black studies too, yeah. especially in, in anthropological circles and certain ones. Um, just like not even being willing to reach outside of the the big dogs and you know i call him mousy mouse but i'm sure that's not even that's his name <laughs> moss or whatever um, it, it depends if you're mouse. if you're going for the french pronunciation or the german pronunciation because i believe he was both so mousy mouse we, should just, we, we can just call him marcel there we go <laughs> marcel um <laughs> you know the marcels the foucault's the mm-hmm. derrida's the hegel's of the world um and it's like so many other people do theory that you can learn from and engage with, which we'll talk about, of course. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. In, in accessible ways, as we said in our trailer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> accessible right. ways. Like, because I, I, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous because we, when, when we are studying Black things with Black theory and Black scholarship, we still have to be literate in the quote-unquote white literature like experts we have no experts not just like oh we heard about the hymn like i gotta be able to articulate three points around Mm -hmm. hegel's theory about um you know dialectical whatever and you know it's like why why Mm -hmm. when all you have to do is be like i know a black person like (laughs) like like what like (laughs) or like my black friend said this the other day kind of (laughs) like like why? You know what? I think we're gonna leave it at that question. <laughs> why? Why? Why academia? Why? Yeah. So but, yeah. If you have any answers for that, leave them in the comments. <laughs> like why? Like why? Um, just, just let us know. But let us know. Yeah. So thanks for listening. Please subscribe. Subscribe. Subscribe and rate us that allows us to be visible like if you enjoyed this conversation tell your friends about it um feel free to follow us at zara's daughters on instagram and zara's underscore daughters on twitter i really like saying underscore underscore i like it too (laughs) all right thanks everyone and you know we'll see you in a couple weeks be kind to yourselves bye bye